This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, will he escape those dastardly clutches? Why cliffhangers are a bad idea. Now, long, long ago... <laughs> When we were but young, carefree podcasters, wide-eyed and full of hope, um, we did an episode about book endings that cheated the reader. Um, And since then, obviously, we've also looked at storytelling modes that can be very annoying to readers, um, including looking very briefly at cliffhangers. Um, But this week, we are going to delve into exactly what a cliffhanger is, and most importantly, what it isn't, and why they are generally a bad idea. Now, I will, as always, put a little disclaimer here in saying that at no point have we ever, nor will we ever say that one thing sort of in a story is inherently bad for the most part no um there are always going to be exceptions to the rule and every now and again a good cliffhanger can actually work but you need to understand how cliffhangers work how they don't work in order to make it successful in your story so that's really what we're going to delve into today yeah Okay, so starting off with what is a cliffhanger and where did the idea come from? Well, back in the 1860s, Wilkie Collins, master of sensation fiction, that is fiction which unashamedly produces thrilling sensations in the reader. I say unashamedly for Victorian times, obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, anyway, he was serialising his books via various literary magazines. Um, the reader would get an episode of The Moonstone or The Woman in White a week, and then would have to wait a seven day. Would then they would have a seven day wait for the next episode. Um, considering that the point of his books was to chill, thrill, and even horrify, that wait was an anxious time indeed. Yes, and I think that we've all had something of that. Back in the day when you had to wait week per week for an episode or something, instead of <laughs> yeah. just being able to blitz through it. Now, these episodes were known for ending with the main character in some perilous predicament, kind of like how they add when they do ad breaks. Um, so, you know, in one case, actually, we had one of the main characters literally dangling from a cliff face which is not a great place to leave someone for a week. No. Uh, later, as we got to the era of spaghetti westerns and Sunday afternoon serials, which had advertisement breaks cut into them, viewers were often treated to the same experience, and at least one of those, which again had the hero dangling from a cliff, because we all like a good gag. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if you see a cliff at any point in a film, you know that someone's going to be dangling off of it. <laughs> yeah, basically. So basically a cliffhanger is any ending where you are forcing the reader or viewer to buy or sort of watch uh, the next book or film in order to resolve the central conflict of the previous book or film. Yeah, definitely. Now, 
cliff the idea of cliffhangers kind of gets confused with other stuff as well so there is a difference between a cliffhanger and a bittersweet ending mm. um, so there's sometimes a bit of confusion over this with some readers thinking that because a book ends in a place where there is not an unqualified victory or perhaps it's an ending they don't really like um then that's a cliffhanger and they feel they have to read the next book because they want things to be the way they want them to be if you see what i mean yeah but it's not actually a cliffhanger as such uh, because you can have a bleak or a bittersweet ending or an ending with a mixed or qualified victory or even a pyrrhic victory where they do something and it was all for naught and it still resolves the main conflict of that story so you might feel compelled to read on in the series and there are many series where i absolutely have done um and you might not like how it ends. And again, there are series where I have not liked how it ends, but it's not actually a cliffhanger. It's just an, a bittersweet ending. Uh, so, for example, The Empire Strikes Back ends with the heroes losing, um, but it resolved the central conflict. Luke did face Vader and he failed. And then they also lost Han Solo. Things look bleak, but that story itself has ended. Now, you know a rescue mission is going to be mounted, but that's a hint at the next story, not a dangling thread from the current one. And that's a bittersweet ending, not a cliffhanger. Um, whereas The Eternals, which I really had to rack my brain about because I practically deleted the film from my head because it was that bad, uh, it ended with the team being kidnapped by their former boss. Uh, the central story was not resolved at the end because it turns out that the big battle didn't resolve the central story and the central story was all about getting to this this boss if you like yeah um and then it just left it and that is absolutely a cliffhanger um there's lots of reasons why that one in particular was really bad but we'll get to that uh, but essentially they're saying you need to watch the next eternals film to find out what happens which is really unfortunate i don't think there's going to be one because it was that dreadful yeah so why do writers and filmmakers actually do it? Well, very simply, it's a manipulation tactic to make readers buy the next book, or in some cases, uh, in order to sort of make them stay in their seat and not to skip over the channel <laughs> when yeah. the ads go. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, in its purest form, a cliffhanger is a denial of satisfaction. So the contract between a writer and a reader is come with me and I'll take you on an adventure. Now, the author doesn't promise a happy ending, depending on the genre. Generally, if it's if it's romance, you're promising a happily ever after at some point, or a happily for now. Um, but they do promise an ending of some kind. So when an author ends with a cliffhanger, they've broken that compact with the reader. Uh, they have essentially cheated. Yes. Now, it can come from a lack of confidence. Ideally, your reader should buy the next book because the first one was good but some writers feel that they need to add extra impetus by not fully delivering on the original story. But forcing a reader to buy the next book in order to get the satisfaction of an ending promised in the first book is, well, at best, it's a little bit dishonest. Yeah, definitely. Um, and as Madeline said earlier, there are obviously exceptions to every rule. A writer who consistently turns out good books in a timely manner may well get away with the occasional cliffhanger between books without their readers feeling cheated. Absolutely. Um, and this tends to work in the case of basically guaranteed 
sort of satisfaction at at the end in some kind of form or another so but it's a very tricky thing to do it's the you know it's the denied satisfaction that the the denied pleasure in order to build anticipation um but that only works if everybody has kind of agreed to it and if you do have a long-standing author who is sort of producing these things <clears throat> at a very good rate um and very consistently then there's kind of a bit of a contract has already been entered particularly if they're writing a series and you're several books into the series at this point because mostly at that point the people who are still reading are invested and are and are going to keep reading that series yeah um and of course it's a slightly different thing if it's between episodes on television or things like that as well so there are definitely cases where actually when done correctly it's a very masterful use of writing but there are also cases where if not done correctly it it's a punch to the face really yeah i mean i'm thinking of um, Nora Roberts in particular. Nora Roberts produces through traditional publication, which is no mean feat, because um, obviously indies can bring out a book a month if they want to, if they can keep on top of that schedule. Mm. Uh, it's quite difficult with traditional publishing. She pr- produces, on average, four books a year. And she writes in series, um, generally. You know, she writes some romance books as well. She writes some fantasy. And I think once in 20 years she had a cliffhanger between the second and the third in her fantasy series and there were howls of dismay about this people really complained despite the fact that she's prolific she always delivers what her readers want and she you know they know they're going to get it next year at the latest Mm -hmm. which is not really a bad schedule for traditional publishing even her, it got so bad that her agent had to come in on the conversation in the end on this forum and say, look, you've obviously been following her all this time. She has given you something like 80 books so far and you yeah. only had one cliffhanger in all that time. Could we please have a sense of proportion? Um, other people were kind of like, it was a great book. I wish it hadn't ended on a cliffhanger, but I am desperate to see how the next one ends. So... It is a tricky beast, and you would have thought that someone who had, you know, that many chips in the bank Hmm. um, might have got away with it a bit more, and yet it was still an issue. And then you think of people like George R. R. Martin, who unfortunately still hasn't produced The Winds of Winter. Yeah. Or Patrick Rothfuss. I mean, when you end on a cliffhanger and then you take 12 years to bring out the next book, then it's not just that you're going to lose readers, you're going to make the ones you keep angry and they're almost going to be prejudiced against the book before it arrives. Yeah. And it's. I think it's a very tricky balance to do. If you are writing a series and you do have an overarching plot, you know, you might have something, you know, a resolution within the first book, which is part of a smaller, sort of a smaller story, and still end up having a cliffhanger for the larger kind of, plot but again it's about that balance and ultimately still having a resolution for the central kind of story of each individual book so it is a little bit of a balancing act um and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't yes so let's have a little look at types of cliffhangers so that we can identify them um and we're going to start off with the 
the simple one, which is the story didn't end. <laughs> yeah, this is the one everyone is familiar with. So instead of finishing the central conflict in a place that makes sense, the author has spun it out into the next book or the next film or what have you. Yeah. Now, this is annoying for so many reasons, uh, but one of them is that it makes plot holes and mistakes even more obvious. Mostly because people have time to really think about them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as we were saying, that's the thing with, if you're going to have a cliffhanger, you better make sure the rest of the book was pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I feel like we're kind of just bullying this, <laughs> this child. We have to go back to the Eternals. Yeah, we go back to the Eternals. Uh, now, they expected uh, sort of battle scenes pretty much you know, it pretty much goes exactly as one would expect. Um, but it was also completely unnecessary because of the cliffhanger at the end. Yeah, it turns out it didn't really resolve anything. There was no reason for that battle scene other than to have a battle scene. It's a bit like the Michael Bay Transformers films, if you've ever seen any of them. They're really terrible. There's lots of fighting and blurriness and not much detail. And most of the time those fight scenes aren't necessary <laughs> yeah um now also similarly uh and i will admit that i've not read this um but a house of sky and breath uh, which is uh, sarah j mass the central conflict isn't resolved by bryce falling between worlds and landing at Rhysand's feet yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a mini rant about this one because I'm still kind of pissed off about it. Um, I actually, you know, I've got a checkered relationship with S.J. Mass's work, and from mm -hmm. an objective an objective perspective, from an objective perspective, um, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like it should be part of like some sort of musical where they've got a yes, a little bit of beat poetry in the middle, and a, um, and a, and a just at a judge who gets yes. a hammer right now and again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if I was being objective about the whole thing, I can see that she's chosen to go in a direction where I can't really follow her because I've now she's pushed me outside of her target audience. Yeah. And she doesn't actually owe me anything personally. So if I keep jumping on the ride now and I get cut to shreds because it's made of rotating blades rather than candy floss, that's kind of my thing. That's kind of my problem. Um you know, I, I'm mixing metaphors really badly there, but I can I can see it. Yeah, just I'm not sure I want to go on a ride which is made of candy floss either. It just feels very <laughs> unsafe. Um, <laughs> One downpour of rain and... <laughs> yeah, that's not great either. Um, but, <laughs> but I see what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, it, it's a me problem because I am almost engineering my own disappointment. Having mm -hmm. said that, Certainly at the beginning, she managed to create characters who were engaging, who you couldn't help wanting to know things about. She had some interesting world building and interesting ideas. And even if her writing wasn't the best, and generally it's it's just not, it didn't matter because she cared about a cohesive plot with structure and a story that kind of you know kept you really entertained. So she did all the, th the basic things that a good storyteller should do. It didn't matter that she wasn't a world-class writer. Um, and I actually enjoyed the first Crescent City book. This is her other series. It's supposed to be for adults rather than new adults or um, you know young adults. And I, I actually enjoyed it. It was a weird mishmash of things, but overall, I kind of liked it. 
So I read the second book, and the second book was awful. But it, it, once again, no structure, um, no sense, really. And then you get to the end of it, and the main character, Bryce, has not really solved anything at all. She's just kind of crashed around a few times. Uh, it's made for a few exciting scenes, which don't really solve anything. And then suddenly, and this was the bit that really bugged me, um, she's basically fallen between worlds and she ends up at Feyre and Rhysand's feet because, surprise, it's all part of the same universe. Yeah. And it's it's like, I would not have read this book if I'd known that was how it was going to end. <laughs> and, and it gives you no real closure at that point either because that doesn't solve the central conflict it's just kind of like where shall i end the book ah here we get a big reveal like a big reveal's enough to end a book on and it's not you have to resolve the central conflict yeah yeah and again i think this is going to just ultimately be something which different people will have kind of you know different tolerances for uh, for some people this was not a bad ending they were excited by it they liked it in terms of it being a a cliffhanger and um because it left a lot of room for speculation and i think that that is something that sarah j mass tends to thrive on is actually the speculation of the of the readers essentially because more and more the style is a lot more like fanfic, I'm gonna say, um, or more like sort of sort of online serialization, yeah. Whereby it's less to do with having necessarily a cohesive and complete plot, and more like an ongoing sort of series, which is being traditionally published. And for some people, that is absolutely what they want. They're really enjoying it, and I have nothing against that. Uh, for others who do want that more cohesive sort of plot. Um, it's going to be very disappointing. And I think, you know, it's one of the things actually which has really made me very wary about even picking up the books because um, I'm already waiting just to find out how things are going to end with the A Court of Thorns and Roses series. Just for Lucian. <laughs> yeah. I just want to know what happens to his story because I feel like that's been left sort of open in the air. Um, but then kind of the rest of it I don't really mind about. And this whole introduction, this whole cliffhanger has actually thrown everything out of balance. Not just the the House of Sky and Breath or the, the House series, but the whole A Court of Thorns and Roses series as well. And so she's kind of, for me, done a double whammy, whereby I've not even read the book with the cliffhanger and it has already actually caused a whole bunch of problems for the whole other series that she's trying to think. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the next type is the conflict is resolved off screen. Um, now, this is a speculative fiction serialized TV show special. Try saying that five times fast, <laughs> by the way. <clears throat> so an episode ends with the characters in dire straits. And then, in the next episode, wah, they're safe again. And usually it's played off as a joke. Um, now, uh, so that they'll have a throwaway line to explain how they got there, but the viewer doesn't tend to see it, or there's a very brief kind of flashback where it's like, oh, that's in dire straits, everything's terrible. And then the next episode, it's like, oh, no, they're all just having a drink. It's like, oh, it's lucky that uh, 
um, that flying rainbow was passing and was able to give us a lift or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely times when you're writing where you don't need to resolve everything on page or on screen. Um, but if you've left your audience dangling for a week, cutting away as the action is happening is very annoying. Yeah. So um, examples, there was... I, this one actually didn't bug me too much, but I could see why it would bother other people. Um, if you watch the recent series, The Last of Us, which is obviously a, a series based on the video game, um, which was really, really good, but there's a point where Joel has been injured and he's, you know, basically bleeding out and he falls off the horse. And Ellie is just left there with him in the middle of nowhere with this grown man and she's like a 14-year-old girl. Yeah. Who um, has to somehow get him away. And bear in mind, this is like post-apocalyptic fungus zombie nightmare land. Yeah. Which is, so it's all not great. And it just ends. And it's like, okay, that's kind of a shitty thing to do to your audience, ending it there. But fine, you're a TV show, they do this. And then when you come in on the following episode, Joel is on a mattress in the basement of a house with us not knowing how he got there at all. I just, and also I feel so cheated because I was like, I'd be like, oh yes, angst. And then it's like, no, we're not even going to give you that. How dare you? How dare you dangle that sweet, sweet angst in front of me and then leave it as a cliffhanger and then don't even deliver. How dare you? That's yeah. just betrayal. Um, there's also, I think, examples of this where the sort of, the conflict is then is resolved far too quickly. Um, so sometimes it's resolved off screen or sometimes it is resolved on screen, but it's like done like a snap of your fingers and you've had all that built up tension. And the Sherlock, the BBC Sherlock series really did this. They ended the first season with this absolute massive cliffhanger, which drove everybody wild. You know, it was so, un it was, I mean, it was so full of tension, but I think it really, really worked. You had all this built up tension, etc. There was this almost a bit of a resolution in terms of saying, okay, well, we kind of, we've got it all down. We know who Moriarty is. We've seen Moriarty. This is it. But the final showdown didn't actually happen. Yeah. Um, and so it worked in some respects. People were very excited. People were really talking about it. It definitely secured them another season, that's for sure. Um, which I think is part of sometimes why some TV writers do it, is that if lots of people are talking about a series, they might be able to get in another season. But it doesn't always work, which is even more frustrating. Um, and so they got another season. And then the following season, it was just a total... Oh, you know, let down in that yeah. they built all this tension and then they couldn't really deliver on it because it was the beginning of a new season. And so the whole kind of climax didn't even really happen at all. And really from the second season, everything just went downhill very fast. Yeah. Um, and I do think that, you know, a part of that was that they really should not have ended the first season on that cliffhanger because they just couldn't deliver on it and then the whole kind of tone was just off from the offset and there were lots of other problems with it but we're not talking about that but i do think that the cliffhanger actually contributed to it because yes it worked very successfully to begin with but if you can't deliver upon it then it just disappoints people and it was very disappointing 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Walking Dead has also done it in a few episodes. I think The Walking Dead got away with it because it delivers in so many other ways that it almost didn't get noticed, but they absolutely did pull it a few times. Yeah, and I do think that at least with a TV series where they're doing it and it and it tends to be within the series, because yes, they, they did tend to do it sort of at the end of a series, but I think also with that is that by then they tended to already have a definite green light for another series afterwards yeah and so there is at least a little bit more of a safety net um and yeah they did always end it with some kind of terrible sort of conflict at the end (laughs) but most of the time when they did have cliffhangers it tended to be within the series within episodes which again there it is this delayed payoff but at least you know you are absolutely going to get that payoff it's only if you then go to the next episode and you don't get that payoff that you just you're just left grumbling yeah absolutely okay our third example no resolution so your characters are pushed into doing something that should have very serious consequences or they're left trapped in a crystal cavern enslaved to the orc king etc then the next episode pops up and it's not even about those characters nor is the episode after that in fact you may have to wait several episodes or several books before you ever find out what happened to them in some cases you never do yeah um this i think sometimes can happen where people just sort of sort of forget storylines or they give up on certain storylines or things like that yeah um or they built up a sort of situation where they're like we can't i don't know we just don't we can't really dedicate time to this i think that's very indicative particularly of sort of larger kind of stories where there's a tv budget or stuff like that or you know there's a lot of pressure and things along those lines in terms of sort of writing and delivering and and edits and cuts and stuff like that but also i think the problem is that if you're building tension with a sort of character like that if you then just leave it for too long that tension disappears because you you cannot guarantee that you know the that your audience is even going to be thinking about it and then and i think sometimes they do that deliberately because they think i can't actually deliver on this i've built it up i've built it up i've built it up i can't actually deliver on it so i'm actually going to leave leave it for a long time until people get tepid with it and then when it's less than epic it's just part and parcel of the larger meal and that is also disappointing and a bit of a cop-out yeah absolutely um and in book terms an example that i have mentioned before but i'll mention it again is the sword of truth series by terry goodkind where Mm. uh, he'll just literally stop his series and the next book in the series will be about completely different characters and it never mentions anybody else or anything it's other characters set in this world by Mm. rights they should be companion novels and novellas but you have to read the entirety of this four to five hundred page novel to get to the last few chapters where the actual characters which move the series arc along yeah. turn up and he he does it so many times in that series um and robert jordan in the wheel of time has been you know he, he leaves characters stranded for several books and doesn't tell you and in robert jordan's case we do know that he had a conversation i believe with george rr R. martin it might or maybe it was brandon sanderson it was someone else who writes absolute sort of tomes of, of fancy novels and they asked him being a younger writer you know when they were younger writers they asked him because he was the master craftsman in the field at the time mm-hmm. you know how how do you d- 
decide where to end the book. And he says, well, I just write until I get X number of words and then I stop. And that is literally the wheel of time. He wrote X number of words and then stopped. Yeah. So so 500,000 words, stop. That's where the book ends. And it's like, can you not see a problem with that? And they were selling, so the publishers were kind of like, yeah, okay, fine. And that's why he ends up with characters who are stranded for books at a time. Yeah. I think it's bad storytelling, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, though I I do think that we are also at that other, you know, we've previously done an episode about different forms of storytelling, particularly, you know, we looked at the hero's journey and stuff like that, but also other forms of storytelling that you get in other countries. Um, And there is something about that style of writing where it's actually, it really should be serialization whereby yeah. it's not it's a one continuous story it's not actually a you know a book onto itself it is just a continuous stream and so it shouldn't and it's kind of been capped off because that's what we're expecting in the west but perhaps actually it would be better if it was just delivered chapter by chapter <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe i mean you you can see it in, i mean we'll talk about it in a bit but you can see it in sort of you know the big victorian novels as well which were serialized a lot of dickens work or wilkie collins as we've already said yeah yeah um, although they they absolutely at times did paint themselves into a corner because they were writing a couple of chapters a week and it was getting published and it's like i can't go back and change that and that happened and i needed it not to happen yeah <sighs> okay all right so the Last one is... Oh, sorry, not the last one. I can't count. Madeline cannot count. You heard it here first. Sorry, the uh, the second to last one is uh, number four. It wasn't a big deal. Now, this sort of cliffhanger can happen during a book or a film. And usually what happens is that there is a scene set in the future which puts the main character in peril. And then we flash back to the beginning of the story. Yeah, this isn't necessarily a bad way to grab a reader's interest if you have a quiet start to a book and perhaps you're not confident about creating bridging distance. You know, we talked about bridging distance before, whereby you can actually not start the main thrust of your story until you're several chapters in. It's something Mm -hmm. I did in Betwixt and Between. And nobody noticed it because they were invested in the characters. And if you perhaps don't have as much practice or you're not as confident that you've you've got people's attention, then... Mm -hmm. Yeah, having a little bit at the beginning which suggests this conflict is coming at some point is not, not a terrible thing to do. It's yeah. a trick, but it's a fairly honest one. It can also work as a as a, an, an interesting framing device which adds a different flavour to what's happening earlier on because you have... I mean, it's not so much foreshadowing as <laughs> you know, knowing where it's going to lead and so there is that sense of anticipation. But again, it's about how you use it. Um, but... Uh, if you have something that demands explanation in that first scene and then when you finally get there your answer is it didn't really matter that resolution of tension is going to fall flat it's going to be so disappointing yeah um this is something that happened in red seas under red skies which by the way is my favorite book out of that series so far um but there's this just bit the beginning where um Locke is having multiple crossbows pointed at him <laughs> and then it should be jean by his side helping him and then jean turns and points a crossbow at him as well 
and we're all going oh my god but that's his best friend they've been through thick and thin together what's happened um is john is john pretending or you know has he been mind controlled by some evil sorcerer and then of course you go back to the beginning of the story and you follow it through and when you finally get there Mm -hmm. to the point where you learn what happened it turns out that Jean had given the secret I'm tricking them hand signal. It's just Locke hadn't seen it. Yeah. And the thing is, I didn't mind that, but I felt like something more should have come of it because there is the whole point, you know, that Jean sort of makes this argument of why on earth would I betray you? We're best friends, you know. And I can totally understand, you know, wanting to sort of build that that sort of tension, but then do something with it you know, explore the fact that Locke is clearly going through something whereby he actually really genuinely thought that his best friend had betrayed him, and that should have been explored in more depth, especially considering what happens later on in that book. There was so much potential there for, you know, a greater level of, you know, exploration about their relationship and about what their standing is, etc. And it wasn't really delivered upon. Yeah. Agreed. Um, you know, this isn't just to pick on that one book. There are other books that have done it. It's the, it's basically the cliffhanger version of it was all a dream. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's it's funny because you know there was this this great thing, um, you know, in the past of uh, I think it was like Disney and and sort of different movies where they would start with some kind of conflict and then there'd be like scratch record and the author the narrator would be like hey that's me you're probably wondering how i got into this situation etc it's the emperor's new group but the point is that actually when they got to that situation it did tend to work you know you did see an explanation of right why the hell is this happening um and it did t- tend to actually be a bit of an epic kind of sequence. I mean, the Emperor's new groove, they did follow through with him being chased as a llama through this and all of that conflict, etc. And it was funny and it did deliver. Um, but I do think that sometimes people get very, very lazy with it. And, and it is, it's very unsatisfying. Um, and you do kind of feel like you've been tricked. And I don't mind if what, it's used to explore is actually something a little bit more subtle. I, in fact, I would like subtle. I like a good bit of subtleness. Um, but then please do explore it. Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, don't go, oh, well, you just didn't see it. It's just one of those things kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one. Um, all the progress is lost. This is our final cliffhanger example. Yeah. Um, basically, every gamer will be familiar with the unique frustration of getting so invested in a game that they forget to save their progress. Mm-hmm. Um, then you happen into a scenario that you're not equipped for, you know, a boss battle that you haven't worked your way up to. So like, and your char- why did the music change? What's going on? <laughs> is that something bad is happening? Something bad is happening to you? Music. <laughs> um, yeah, your character dies and, oh shit, you're right back to your last save point from four hours ago and you have to do everything again. Now, obviously games do have built-in automatic save now a yeah. bit more often, um, but the point stands on this one. Yeah, we all recognise that frustration. Um, now, this is perhaps the most annoying type of cliffhanger that you can get in fiction, where the story has ended. In theory, the conflict is resolved. Except, hey, wait, 
the bad guy has crawled out of the ashes laughing and done what he was going to do anyway. Oh. It is incredibly frustration. This is different. Did you just say it is incredibly frustration? I did. Sorry, this is incredibly frustrating. No, no, I I like it. I do like like, this is frustrationally frustration. (laughs) (laughs) Very frustration. Much anger now. Yes. (laughs) Um, Right, yeah. So basically, this is different from the whole Empire Strikes Back thing where you know, you had the heroes failing. This is where the heroes did everything right. They won. And the author just dials it back because of reasons. Because they need them not to have won, or they need them to have won, but not to the point where they can actually end this conflict, because guess what? This guy's really important in the next book. Yeah, it's the game thing where it's like, it doesn't matter actually what action you take. The ending is always going to be the same. Um, which is really annoying if if there's literally nothing you can do which will stop you know I, I don't mind there being a set ending in a story you know where it's like inevitably that but it, it kind of it it's not very good form if basically you've told your narrator that sorry not your narrator your reader that they are going to get one type of ending you've given them that ending and then you've literally just stolen it away from them like swiping sweets from under their nose (laughs) yeah and that's basically what it is here you go you want this delicious chocolate cake the chocolate cake smells amazing you can just think how it's going to taste and it's snatched away yeah um and obviously i've said before i'm quite a fan of stranger things even when it's had a weaker season i've still really enjoyed it i really enjoyed season four of stranger things um there were bits in it that genuinely made me choke up (laughs) which is like quite a difficult reaction to get out of me. Um, and the end of uh, season four of Stranger Things, you know, this wasn't an unqualified victory. They kind of, they came up with a very daring and dangerous plan. All the moving parts came together, impossibly considering that at least one of the main characters was in a Russian gulag at the beginning of the series. Yeah. Um, and another one had been sort of taken over by, you know, the, this, this evil mastermind behind, the, you know, the Upside Down, etc. Yeah. And even though I felt that it was a bit too pat that they were explaining who was behind a lot of the Upside Down who'd gone in and taken over, etc. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I'm on board because you've really put your heart and soul into this and I can't ignore that kind of passion. I'm on board. This is my thing. And... You know, they they ended up killing off a beloved character who was a new character, but it was just so incredibly emotional and moving. It was the proper heroic sacrifice. Yeah. And another character ends up in a coma at the end of it. So, again, they've sacrificed a lot for the win. And then what happens is that Venkner turns out to be the big bad behind everything and just tears down the walls of reality anyway, no matter the fact that they've just won. Yeah. It's like, yeah, okay, that's going to be an interesting place to start season five, but fucking hell, that was really annoying for an ending. Yeah. And again, this is not saying, right, you can have a bittersweet ending, but there should actually, you should feel like something has been achieved by the hero's efforts. And the hero is kind of going, you know, through massive efforts and then nothing changing, nothing being different. 
is not satisfying in the least. There should at least be something which has basically said, right, we've actually kind of come to this because, you know, we failed in one way, but we have succeeded in another. And perhaps the success is we have succeeded in saving some of our friends and therefore we're all alive to face the big bad now at the end. Or perhaps it's, you know, something else. But when you do basically just deliver a whole story and then retcon it at the end, people are going to be very unsatisfied with that. Yeah, so uh, I, I think there are other examples, but that was the one that sort of sprung to mind to me. But yeah, there are various other things. So anyway, in conclusion, um, before we get on to talking about what we personally do when we, when we address endings uh, and whether we've fallen down on any of these things, um, basically an author does not owe a happy ending or even an ending every reader will like, but they do owe an ending to the central conflict of that story. Yes. Now, cliffhangers are far more likely to deter your audience than to force them to stay aboard. But remember, a cliffhanger, as Jules has just said, is about not resolving the central conflict of the story. It doesn't mean that you have to resolve the conflict of the overarching plot. For example, if we look at Jules's work, um, and I know we're going to look at things in a little bit more detail, uh, at the end of every Harker and Blackthorn, you know, they've resolved what's happening in that plot, but you still have Evergreen doing their shit. <laughs> There's always something going on behind the yes. scenes, like at the end of the most recent book, the central conflict around Steve's family has been resolved mm -hmm. and then they get back to the museum and they find Don who has been in the wind yeah um who has apparently been tortured to within an inch of his life and somehow he's managed to get his way back to the museum and that's where it ends yes and some people have said oh that's a cliffhanger it's like no it's not really because I resolved the central conflict it is and this is the thing where cliffhanger just becomes a very difficult word to sort of understand because on the one side I can understand what people are saying in that we've had this like we've been sort of baited something has been dangled before us to basically say and this is what we're going to have next but that's more like being given a sort of hint of what's what's to come rather than not actually completing the meal or the course that you've basically promised people in the book that they have received yeah this is this is, would you care to have a look at the dessert menu? Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's a perfect way of looking at it, yes. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, there are obvious exceptions to the, the don't do cliffhangers rule. Yes. Um, but authors who do make it work tend to be very experienced, prolific, and really know their audience. And they don't put off books for years and years and years at a time. Yes. And yet they still get complaints, a la Nora Roberts. Yes. Um, it's going to be something that everyone's going to have, you know, uh, sort of different levels of different sort of some people are really going to like it. Some people are really not going to like it. Um, and as we've said, it does tend to work best if you are writing a series and you have already proven yourself to be able to deliver, etc. Um, that will sort of stop people getting too upset. Um, but it is a marketing tool. Um, it is something which you you will see a lot of. So even though we can say it's not very good in terms of, you know, not very good strategy, um, we do have to admit that we do see it a lot. And the reason we see it a lot is that people do employ it in order to 
help their case in order to try and get another season in order to build interest in order to leave people guessing so that they keep talking about their books between releases which is a marketing strategy but it does have to be done very very carefully and where it works is as we've said where there is someone who is established who does have an established fan base uh, who can rely on people to wait and to have faith in them to deliver yeah okay let's look at some of what we do basically yeah um now i'm gonna just briefly mention obviously i've said before that i belong to the earth is very different from the following three books Mm -hmm. because it wasn't intended to be a series originally guys yeah um (laughs) You were trolled. <laughs> I was tricked. I was tricked. Um, what i done in I Am the Silence, I Hold the Tide, and I Rule the Night is at the beginning you get a very, sh- and I mean very short, literally a page or less, snippet of something that's happening. It's the fast forward thing where you've got M in some deadly peril. Mm-hmm. Only what I've done with that is it's not really a cliffhanger. This is kind of like, this is where this is because I don't really start in the middle of the action with a lot of these things um certainly not with those books i don't you generally get a little bit of sort of gradualding of character and, and gradually worsening circumstances you normally get a ghost by chapter three if not before um or something spooky's happened but with those prologues at the beginning even though they're almost throwaway when you finally get to that part in the book i don't resolve it just by going oh it was nothing you realise just how bad it was, and it was so much worse than you thought it was going to be from the prologue. Yeah. (laughs) And you definitely deliver on it. (laughs) So, for example, um, in I Hold the Tide, there's M trapped in the cave, trying to get out desperately, Mm -hmm. sort of clawing with her broken fingers, although you don't know they're broken at that point, um, at the cave wall, because there's water coming in, and she's going to drown, and she's been sealed in, and we don't know who sealed her in. Um, and then when it you get to that point, you realise just how bad that situation was. Yeah, it's certainly not something which is resolved. It is very much part of the larger action, um, which meant that it was satisfying. We got a little, a little taste, a little taste of what was to come, which built the tension, I think. And the um, same with I Rule the Night, where it's kind of a more of an elliptical one, where you've got M and this terrible supernatural being just standing behind us you don't even really get a good look at it Mm. and it's literally doing that biblical thing of you know look down at the lights of the city i will put the world at your feet if you will bow down and worship me kind of thing and then you don't know why but m turns and she smiles at it and she puts her hand in its hand as if to agree and then we start the story (laughs) properly and then when you get there you realize why she's done it, and also that it's so much worse than you thought it was. Yes. <laughs> I think that's actually really the way to deliver on a cliffhanger, is if you basically say, here's what's to come, and then when you deliver it, it is even better. It's like, oh yes, I've got a sumptuous chocolate cake, and then you deliver it, and it's not just a sumptuous chocolate cake, it is an enormous gooey, warm, melt-in-your-mouth sumptuous chocolate cake. (laughs) Um, With Harker and Blackthorn, obviously I've done something a bit different. I've 
I mean, I've used prologues to just give you a flavour of what might be coming in the books, but you're not ever coming to a point where it's like, this is the central conflict you're going to encounter this in the book. This is just kind of a, you might be meeting this creature this week kind of thing. Oh, what could have possibly left the blood on the side of the boat, etc., etc. Yeah. Um, but as Madeline has pointed out, you generally, at some point during the book or towards the end, you will get a little like interdepartmental memo about something that evergreen's doing and i honestly i think the most sinister one is is probably the one at the end of the shadow and the soul where no it's not at the end of this wild justice where you've clearly got the departments gradually turning on each other and Mm. someone has been sent out to question somebody else and they're using extreme means and you don't really find out what that means but you know there's a lot of screaming involved yes (laughs) and it's like okay something within evergreen is breaking down but that doesn't necessarily mean a good thing for harker and blackthorn in fact that could be a lot worse Yeah, and I I kind of feel like with those sort of little snippets, it's interesting because it's almost like looking into the clockwork, where you've been watching the surface, you've been watching the hours go by and stuff like that, and that's the main story for each, you know, every day is the main story that you get in the Harker and Blackthorn books. And then every now and again, we just get this chance to peel back the sort of the surface of the clock and look and just see that yes okay so the day is complete the the hour hands have done their circuit great we've got through all of that but behind everything things are still ticking and things are still moving and you know that another day is about to begin and i think it really really works to sort of maintain this sense of movement maintain tension without being unsatisfying yeah, see, I, I think it is one of those where your mileage may vary, although uh, most people really enjoy those little little snippets and they've said so. Someone else has said they're completely boring and they scan read them if they read them at all. I'm like, okay, well, that's up to you. You are going to miss details, but fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and I think also the, the thing is that if you, even if you don't, remember or digest everything that sort of is said in those little snippets you're not going to spoil the book you're not going to then completely misunderstand everything in the next book um they are there kind of like almost like a a palate cleanse is the wrong thing but you know sometimes when you're having a gourmet meal every now and again they're like and here's a little here's a sorbet here's a little this that the other before the next meal it's kind of almost like that um and you can either take it or leave it, but it's not going to ruin anything, but it is going to enhance everything. Yeah, a, a, a palate cleanser. Yeah. So, yeah. I think <laughs> when it comes to uh, cliffhangers, a lot of people believe that I used a cliffhanger at the end of The Sons of Thestian. Um, no. I don't think I did. I don't think you'd, I wouldn't have called that a cliffhanger because it's sort of resolved. You, to be honest, with um, Jonathan, you kind of told us where the book was going to end right at the beginning. It's just you don't realise that you've been told until you get to the end of the book. Yeah, one of my favourite things is just one of my other editors, Amelia, 
sort of rereading the book after she'd finished editing book two and she reread the sons of thirstian and she was so angry with me she just kept sending messages like yeah, it was right here it was right here this whole time you told us it was right there how did i miss this and i was so satisfied oh it was so good um <laughs> but yeah i think the thing is that i absolutely set up the second book with the end of the first one um and weirdly enough for me it happened because it was only meant to be a complete story actually um originally when i was writing the sons of thestian and then i saw how it ended and i realized that it was the end of that chapter and that now there was going to have to be another sort of course of action because it was almost in some ways the inciting incident of the next chapter yeah um and so i had to hint at that and i think it worked i think it frustrated a lot of people but i think it also excited a lot of people but i do feel like you could have read the sons of thestian and said right that is the end of that story and you didn't have to read the second one in order to find out how the first one ended you know how it ended yeah i think that's something we both do as in even when it's part of a series and we you know for full satisfaction we'd say yeah read the series obviously we're going to say read the series <laughs> uh, but with every single book you can read them as a single episode so i mean with unveiled i want people to be able to pick up i hold the tide and go yeah that was a full story but mm. now i want to know what happened before that and after that um, and yeah. the same with Harkon Blackthorn. I know somebody started with Nightmare Trail and I'm like, oh my god, that's like, it's not a bad place to start as such. It's just kind of so much has already happened. But they really enjoyed yeah. it and then said, I think I need to go back to the beginning and reread all the others. Yeah, and I think that that's a very tricky thing to do with series. Um, but I, I do remember reading um, Caroline Lawrence's The Roman Mystery books, um, the first book i read of hers was actually the second book in the series uh which was the secrets of vesuvius um and then i went back and read the first one um the secret uh the secrets of ostia i think it is yeah um where you actually find out how all the characters met but it didn't matter because yes there had been this whole kind of setup um but the story was complete onto itself now that works sometimes it doesn't work sometimes and again it will depend on on different people's sort of wants and wishes and stuff like that um but certainly you want people to be able to come into a story fresh i think if you have people coming into a story with a level of expectation and then you cannot deliver on that expectation you are ruining basically the whole rest of it i think yeah absolutely um so you've got to be very sure before you do put in a cliffhanger um i think and obviously a lot of people haven't had a chance to read this even though i am writing it <laughs> um is the kestrel saga because obviously we've had the first I've, I've finished the first two books I've almost finished the third book now. Um, and uh, sorry, I can feel Jules holding her breath like <laughs> she's been waiting on this for a while. Um, and I think the second book ends with not a cliffhanger, but definitely a taste of, right, well, we've got the continuing plot happening. And the first book does too, because it is a series. 
but I have very much tried to make sure that each book is its own independent piece that can stand on its own and they're linked by bridges, not by, you know, necessary structural foundations. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, can you think of an example of a cliffhanger which really actually worked for you, Jules? Uh, not really off the top of my head. I think I think it's what, where I think you might argue that it worked is where they've resolved the central issue, but some of the subplots have been left in a cliffhanger state. So in some cases, it's like the romantic subplot has been left as a cliffhanger, mm-hmm. um, which in fairness, I'm guilty of, because technically I did that with Crowned with Bone. <laughs> you did that with more than crowd and <laughs> I remember you I remember the, the the many many messages of abuse I got over this from you so thank you I did not abuse you <laughs> there was a lot of there was a lot of swearing involved I seem to recall um, no with crowned with bone obviously it was crowned with bone and nightmare trail are big turning point novels certainly in yeah. terms of the subplot and terms of Amy's own sort of development as a character and mm. her willingness to embrace something which for her is very very scary, way scarier than the supernatural stuff. Um, and it's kind of a failure in Crowned with Bone to do so and then um, an actual success at trying to grapple with this emotional stuff in Nightmare Trail. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of people got to the end of the crowd with bone or kind of oh, cliffhanger. And it's like, well, it's not really a cliffhanger again. Again, it's I've left the relationship dangling a little bit because it needs to dangle at that point because everything is really screwed up for them. Yeah, and I think again, it's this is the point where cliffhanger starts to become a bit of a confused word um, because there, when you are writing a series like that, there are so many different strands and there are almost different plots that are happening because you do have the subplots, you do have the, the internal journey, you have the external journey, etc. Um, but the point is that there does need to be a very clear kind of resolution to the larger machinations of that particular story. Um, I think one example of a cliffhanger which didn't bother me too much um and that's perhaps because i already had the next book <laughs> to hand <laughs> was actually red seas under red skies where spoilers guys but it ends with the characters have been poisoned they get poisoned very early on in the book in book two and they have to work towards kind of getting this antidote and at the end one of them gets the antidote and one of them doesn't yeah and it is left like that now i would say that that is a cliffhanger because yes there were lots of other things happening um but one of the big strands was the fact that they were poisoned and that's why they were sort of strong-armed into this situation um, but there was still, a, I think, a clear enough sense of resolution that it it wasn't it was between an overhang and a cliffhanger, um, and it wasn't too unsatisfying. In fact, it, for me, it worked very well. But again, I am conscious of the fact that I did have the next book already to hand and could just immediately dive into it. Um, so perhaps other people didn't feel the same way, um, but for me, it worked. But I think that's probably the only example of a cliffhanger that has, I think, 
successfully hooked me and then delivered. The BBC Sherlock cliffhanger did successfully hook me when it first came out. I was super excited. I was very into it. I was really engaged. I was talking with people. I was really enjoying it. And then its failure to deliver was a massive blow, I think. Yeah. I think uh, with Red Seas Under Red Skies, I also had the next book lined up. So I just finished that one and then immediately started the next one. So I barely even noticed it was a cliffhanger. Yeah. Whereas I seem to recall the end of, oh God, what's it called? The third book. Oh, um, uh, The Republic of... Um, Republic. The Republic of Thieves. Yeah, that's it. So I'm looking at it right now. It's on my bookshelf opposite. <laughs> I just tilted my head so that I could read it. <laughs> yeah. I I don't feel that ended on a cliffhanger, but there was a weird sort of unsatisfactory note at the end, as I recall. Yeah. Though this is one of the things is where, again, we you really start to see how different readers will have kind of um, different... I keep, I keep losing the words for what I'm trying to say here, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, you know, different mileage is, I think, what I'm saying, is that I wasn't as unsatisfied with the end of The Republic of Thieves as I know Jules was. And that is literally just down to taste. So... Yeah, that wasn't a cliffhanger thing. That was just kind of like, I'm getting a bit bored of them not having enough wins because I now find they're not competent. That's But that's a me thing. Um, yeah. So... So, yeah. Um, so yeah I, I think kind of we have reached the natural conclusion without a cliffhanger I'm glad to say <laughs> um, though of course uh, we are now left on a bit of a cliffhanger because we'd love to know what you guys think um, do you agree with what we said do you disagree have you found that any of the cliffhangers that we've mentioned have been satisfying for you you know we're very eager to hear from you um we love to have different opinions and we also love to hear of examples of cliffhangers that you feel really did work and examples of cliffhangers which you feel didn't work so you know do get in touch with us remember you can get in contact via our facebook um, our tumblr or our twitter both individually or through the dissecting dragons pages now before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and jules has got one that she's been teasing me with for um a little while now so jules yeah um first of all this is a romanticy so go in expecting it to be heavy on the romantic it's not even really subplot but if you want to say dual plots if you like um it's pretty heavy on the romance side of things this is Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. I genuinely think this is going to be the next big thing. Okay. Um, it's new adult romanticy, so you've got younger-ish characters uh, do in more adult situations. I think the main character is about 21. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's set at this cutthroat military academy for dragon riders. So, okay. So it's already, you know, it's already butter galore. You've got, like, dragon riding you've got academy fiction which people love um it it has smut in the appropriate places for there to be smut um there's okay. what great magical powers there's bonding with the dragons so you know if you happen to survive all the, the tests etc and a dragon chooses you rather than char grills you <laughs> then you've got this wonderful thing where um the characters bond with the dragons and the dragons only speak to their riders and etc um and then there's this it turns out as i mean okay the main character violet uh, is 
quite small for a dragon rider. She's been pushed into it. She doesn't want to do it, but her brother died. And her mother, who is the general of this, of, in general of the army, but also of the, the dragon riders, has said, well, you're a storing guard, so you will be a dragon rider or you'll die trying. You know, really hard at us about this. <laughs> Which is exactly the thing you should be saying when you've already lost one child. <laughs> yeah. Um, her daughter, her other daughter, is also a dragon rider, qualified one. Mm. And then the youngest is Violet. Um, Violet is smaller. She's not naturally athletic. She wanted to be a scribe, and she literally just gets ripped out of that life and told she's being a dragon rider or else. Um, and she also has this musculoskeletal issue whereby her joints will sublax. So, oh. you know, the ligaments and things just aren't tight enough. So she's already got this additional thing where, you know, if someone bumps their knee, they'll get a bruise. If she bumps her knee, there's a chance she's knocked it slightly out of alignment and she has to be really careful. <sighs> so there's there's that on top of everything else. You've got a real underdog main character and everyone hates the storm guards because of... I hope I'm saying that right. Um, because basically they are... Um, there was some issues with a rebellion a generation back and mm -hmm. the rebels were executed and the children of the rebels were pushed into being dragon riders because there's a high, you know, there's a high mortality, there's a high attrition rate. Yeah. Um, I think on the first trial where you're literally get, just going to walk across this very dangerous parapet, um, something like 200 people set out and only 120 make it to the other side. Oof. So it's not pulling any punches in that respect. Um, but it's great. If you love to see a character sort of through sheer grit and determination and cleverness, she's very clever in how she defeats people. Mm -hmm. um, not just sort of like, oh, I've become this ultimate warrior. It's like, no, I'm always going to be outclassed in certain things, but I can think my way around them because I'm smarter than other people. Yeah. Um, and, and it's also just really nice and a little ray of sunshine and is kind, even though she's been told not to make friends, just make allies. And, you know, if some if it's a choice between you or someone else, then push them off, you know, kind of thing. Wow. And she won't do it. And it's just really refreshing. And even the whole romance side of things, it's like, it doesn't do the love triangle thing. It's like, this is the bloke she was really interested in and he cannot at any point see that she has grown as a person. He wants to keep her as she is. Mm -hmm. Whereas this other one, you initially think, oh God, don't go for him. Don't, you know, that's a really bad deal. And then you get to know him a bit better and it's like, okay, I can see why people would find this person interesting as well. So <laughs> again, it is, it sort of took me back to, you know, reading Twilight for the first time and getting that wonderful sense of escapism, except I think yeah. technically this is probably a better built world. Or reading the first A Court of Thorns and Roses book and just it really being entertained by the story and engaged by the characters. Except okay. this one isn't stupid. <laughs> She's really good. <laughs> um, I got an arc of the audiobook, by the way, and the audiobook is really, really good. So I highly recommend it. People are already saying this is badly written tribe. And I'm like, it doesn't have to be literary fiction. It doesn't mm. have to be like perfect prose. It's really good storytelling. Okay. Is it out yet? Yes, it's out now. Okay, brilliant. Okay. Um, definitely going to have to check that out because it just sounds like fun, easy, but enjoyable listening. So, yeah. 
I'm gonna have to get it now. <laughs> I have already read so much because of you this year. <laughs> I'm so bad for your book budget. You really are. Uh, I'm really glad that I have a Waterstones card because, like, when it comes to Christmas, I I tend I have like. 30 40 pounds on my waterstones card which i could then use to buy presents because i end up buying so many books throughout the year (laughs) and that's not like and i don't even shop at waterstones all that often i tend to try and go for my independent bookstore whenever i'm sort of in town so like you are really bad for me (laughs) i'm sorry mostly (laughs) <laughs> no you're not and on that note guys we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to Dissecting Dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes for more information visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash readers. Or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.